you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We'll be in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, and partial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have written it as with an iron pen so that it would last from generation to generation. And that we have it before us now so that we might glean from it something of You. That we might understand more of who You are and of what You have done for us in Christ. Lord, we ask that You would help us to understand who You are and what You have done. That You would help us to see clearly what is in the text and that You, by the power of Your Spirit, would apply it to us to make us more conformed into the image of your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the ministry of the devil. The ministry of the devil. Within the context of the local church, we speak often of the ministry of the church and the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the preacher, the ministry of the musicians. But we don't often enough talk about the ministry of the devil. And everyone from high school sports to the United States military knows that one of the most important things in battling uh, your enemy is first of all knowing that you're in a battle. The first and most important thing of war is knowing that you are in a war. The second and most important thing is to know your enemy. To know who your enemy is, what your enemy does, what your enemy's mission is, what it looks like for the enemy to fulfill that mission and how the enemy is defeated. And so this morning and next, I want to look at the ministry of the devil. James talks here in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, about the ministry of the devil with regard to us as individuals. What is it that the devil seeks to do to us, each of us? What is it that the devil seeks to to, to plant within us? The seeds that the devil seeks to plant within our own heart and our own mind. And then next week, as we get into James chapter 4, we'll look at what that gives birth to in the congregation or in the community if the devil succeeds in his mission within us as individuals. So I want us to turn our attention now to James chapter 3, verses 13 and 18, as we look at two simple points that arise from the text. First is the devil's ploy. The devil's ploy. Imagine for a moment that there's a job who has been hired there's a man who has been hired for a job this man has been hired to build a home for you you've been looking at blueprints you've been looking at homes you've been looking on zillow and uh, homes for sale and you've been looking for all of these homes but you just haven't found the home that fits your needs and so you decide to have one built you hire a contractor and you've looked at the contractor's work you've driven by homes that you know this man has built and you know that the man is good for the job You know that he knows what to do. So you hire him. You pay him high dollar to build the house exactly the way you want it. 
to build it within the time frame that you've allotted. And so he has the job. A couple of months go by and you're going by checking on the house to see the progress and nothing's been done. You check up with him and you ask him, hey, what's going on? You, I know you're good for this. I know you know how to build houses. I've seen the other houses you've built. Where's the work? And he says, oh, I'll get to it. I know what I'm doing. And he, you keep uh, giving him second chances. You give a couple more months, a couple more months go by and still nothing's been done on the house. And you say, what's going on? Maybe you're not the man for the job. The man knew what to do. He had the skill to do it, but he lacked the wisdom. He lacked the, the, the desire to actually do what he knew to do. And knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is another. Knowledge is the cognitive awareness of that which is right. It is the understanding of that which is right. But wisdom is the ability to apply that which is known. Wisdom is the ability and the willingness to apply the knowledge that you have to your life. And here James will speak to us on wisdom. And notice with me that he, he puts in contrast these two realities. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. James's highest importance here is not wealth and poverty. It is not social likability and friendlessness. It is not postgraduate education and a GED. The most important thing that James wants to talk to us about here in this text is godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Godliness and worldliness. Fallenness and salvation. And so here he starts first with the devil's ploy. He starts first in verses 13 through 16 with what it is that the devil seeks to do within us. And he goes on in verse 13 and asks this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James at the risk of sounding repetitive, says the same thing that he said in every passage that we've seen thus far. He encourages us to live as those who have been saved. If you have truly been saved by the blood of Christ, then you are going to live as one who has been saved. Your life is going to be different. Your actions are going to be different. Your words are going to be different. Your thinking is going to be hardwired into the Word of God rather than hardwired into the things of the world. Everything about you will be different because salvation is not merely a matter of turning over a new leaf. It's not merely a matter of cleaning yourself up a little bit. It's not merely a matter of doing all the right things and refusing to do all the wrong things, but it is an entire identity change. It is to be made new in Christ. It is to be given a new heart with new desires, a new mind with new thoughts. It is to be entirely made new. And if Christ has done that marvelous and wonderful work within you to make you new, then you are going to be obviously new. You're going to live as one who has been bought by the blood of Christ. You're not going to do the very same things that put Christ on the cross in the first place. You're going to want nothing to do with those things anymore. And James asks this question, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who among you has wisdom? Who has the understanding of what is right and the ability to apply what is right to your life? Those who have such understanding, those who have such wisdom, will show that. They will show that, by verse 13, by His good conduct, let Him show His works in the meekness of wisdom. And what we find here is that He does not put the cart before the horse. He puts the horse out in front, the horse of salvation, 
It is that God must do a work within you, making you wise, and then you will show that wisdom. You will show those good works, that that, uh, good work of God within you by the good works that you do. Then he goes on in verse 14. And he begins to talk about this spiritual warfare that we are within. He begins to talk about what it is that the devil seeks to do within each of us as individuals. What it would look like if the devil had his way with us. If the devil had his way with us, then it would be like verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read a very familiar text to us. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 and reading through verse 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so what Paul is telling us at the end of his letter to the church at Ephesus, at the end of his wonderful letter, he says, finally, finally, now that I've said all that I've had to say in the book of Ephesians, now I'm going to give you one final warning. I'm going to give you one final challenge. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And he goes on and he explains the reasoning for which he tells the church at Ephesus that they must be strong. It is because they are in war. It is because they are within a spiritual battle. Because they are facing the, the devil and his demons. Because they are facing spiritual darkness and they must be prepared for that. As we saw and talked about this morning in Sunday school. There is so much that is on TV today. There is so much that is on the radio today. There is so much that is uh, paraded around the streets around us that is celebrated and looked at as that which is good. We live in a day when evil is called good and good is called evil. And for that reason, we must be alert. We must stand strong in the Lord. We must be those who are bold in Christ and who are willing to stand for the Lord. We are in a spiritual battle. And the greatest act of militant behavior is not simply to defeat someone in war. It is to convince someone that they're not even fighting at all. If Satan can convince us that we're not even at war at all, then he has already won. He has us right where he wants us. If he can make us believe that there's nothing wrong, that our own sinfulness really isn't all that bad, and that he is only truly trying to offer us that which will offer us fulfillment and our greatest desires, then he has us right where he wants us. If everything is about me, myself, and I, then the devil has accomplished his mission. And that's what we see here in James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This word for jealousy here is more than just desiring after that which another person has. It's more than just wanting what everyone else has. It's more than just driving down the road and seeing the house and the car that someone else has and saying, oh, I really want that. I wish I could have that. But this bitter jealousy that James speaks of is down within the heart. It is rooted deep within you. It is more than just a desiring after something else. It is actually a hatred for the person who has what you don't have. It is a disdain for them. It is a saying within yourself, they don't deserve that. I deserve more than what they have. I've earned more than what they have. It's bitter jealousy. It's a bitter desire for what others have. If you have this within your heart, and if you have selfish ambition, if you're always folded inward, thinking about yourself, thinking about what you can get out of the, thir- the service, thinking about what people can come to do to serve you, then the church will not move forward. But if you come into the church house saying, how can I serve God? How can I worship Him today? How can I put myself aside and serve those around me? How can I show love to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I give for them? How can I serve them? Then that is what it looks like to be a healthy church. That is what it looks like to be a healthy individual within the context of the local church. Verse 15. This sort of behavior, this sort of bitter jealousy, this sort of selfishness is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is the devil's ploy. If the devil can convince you that it's all about you, that at the end of the day what matters most is whether or not you have everything that you've ever desired for, if the devil can convince you that that is ultimately what life is about, then the devil has you right where he wants you. But life is about so much more than ourselves. Life is about so much more than my own desires and my own wants. Life is ultimately about glorifying God. And one of the ways in which God is glorified is by us putting ourselves to the side, by us serving one another, by us loving one another. And this is why he says, James, the very half-brother of Jesus, says that this sort of behavior is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What James is reminding us here is that there's no gray area. There's no sense of neutrality here. But that if you are walking in the world, then it is evidence that you are of the world. And if you are walking in Christ, if your fruits bear, if you bear the fruit of righteousness, then it is evidence that you have been made righteous in Christ. And note with me in verse 15 that he says that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. If we are to have true godliness, if we are to have true purity, if we are to have true righteousness that frees us from bitterness, that frees us from jealousy, that frees us from our own inward thinking then it must come down from above. Turn back with me to James chapter 1, verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5. James says here, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so what James reminds us of in James chapter 1, verse 5, is that wisdom, true wisdom, true godliness comes from God. True wisdom does not come from us striving and doing all the right things, checking off the list of all the commandments that we've kept and saying, look, I've done it. Look at me, I've, I've been righteous enough. Now I'm truly wise. I've done all the right things and not done all the wrong things. Now I'm truly wise. No, wisdom from God comes from God. If we are to be wise, if we are to walk in wisdom, if we are to walk in understanding of what it is that God would have us to do, then that must come from above. That must come from earnest prayer that God would do a work within us to show us who and what He would have us to be. Look at verse 16. I don't want to press too much into verse 16 because we'll look at it more next week in James chapter 4. But verse 16 is a foreshadowing of what James will talk about. Four. Four, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. Where selfishness and self-centered behavior, where those things exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If we want to see the church at Mount Carmel absolutely and utterly destroyed, then start with selfishness. Start with a lack of love for one another. Start with a desire only to see self served and to see your own wants and your own desires fulfilled. But if you want to see the church burst with with growth and you want to see the church filled up, if you want to see that happen, put self aside and focus on loving one another. How can we love each other? How can we serve each other? And even if the church doesn't grow numerically, even if the church doesn't grow by even one more person, as long as we are growing spiritually... As long as we are growing in our love for Christ and in our love for one another, then we are doing all that God has called us to do. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Selfishness destroys the church. Selfishness halts the growth of the church. But it is when we come to the end of ourselves when we understand that the most important thing that we have is not our own wants being fulfilled, but is to see the mission of the gospel move forward, when we come to understand that, then we are right where God would have us to be. There ought to be no such thing as jealousy and selfishness, even so much as named among us. Jealousy and selfishness is not listed among the spiritual gifts that God gives. It's not a spiritual gift for someone to be jealous. It's not a spiritual gift for someone to always get their way. The second point that I want to see here is the debtor's practice. The debtor's practice. We see a sharp word used in verse 17, but this Conjunctive word shows that verses 13 through 16 show us what it looks like if the devil has his way. And verses 17 through 18 will show us what it looks like when God has his way in the church. Verses 13 through 16 detail for us a destroyed church, a dismayed church, a discouraged church, a church that is altogether blown open to because of selfishness and because of bitterness that has crept within the church. Verses 13 through 16 show us what it looks like when the devil fulfills his ministry 
within us as individuals. But verses 17 and 18 show us what it looks like when a church is on fire for the Lord. They show us what it looks like when individuals have been bought by the blood of Christ and have clearly shown their righteousness and have clearly shown that God has done a mighty work within them. Verse 17, But, but the wisdom from above, again, that wisdom that comes from God and comes within us, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Notice first that the very first thing that has to happen is purity. But the wisdom from above is first pure. If we are to have righteousness, if we are to walk among one another with mercy and good fruits, if we are to walk among one another with peaceableness and gentleness toward one another. If we are to do that, then we must first be made pure. And how is one made pure? Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I don't want, want to look at verses 20 and 21. Actually, 19, beginning in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We are made pure by the blood of Christ. We are made pure by the pure and spotless blood of the Lamb that was poured out for us upon the cross at Calvary. And so we cannot, be, we cannot do the things of purity unless we are first made pure. And we are made pure by God's sovereign work within us of saving us, of making us new. And once He makes us pure, it says in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Then, once we have been made pure, then we will have peace and gentleness. We will have reasonableness, mercy, good fruits, impartiality or love for everyone, regardless of background and sincerity or a lack of hypocrisy. We're going to be what we say we are. And this would be a list that I would encourage each of us, as I've done myself throughout this week, to go through this list and say, am I peaceable? Am I gentle with those around me? Am I open to reason or am I always dead set on getting my way? Am I full of mercy? When my brother or sister does that which deserves my anger against them? Do I show them mercy and love instead? Am I bearing good fruits? Am I sincere in my walk with Christ? Not just on Sunday mornings when everybody else is watching, but am I truly walking with the Lord every day of life? And look what happens. Verse 18. Look what happens when we start with ourselves. When rather than looking at the church and the brokenness that we see within the church and saying, oh, it's so-and-so's fault. They really need to get cleaned up. If we instead start with ourselves and say, God, start with me. Purify me. Make me pure. Make me more conformed to the image of your Son. If we would start there, 
If we start with ourselves rather than thinking that all of the problems in the world are external, but start with ourself and say, am I truly walking with the Lord as I ought? Am I truly obeying God as I should? Am I truly living up to the calling that God has placed upon my life? If we start there, if each of us as individuals starts with ourselves, verse 18 is what will happen. And a harvest, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when we are righteous, when we are walking with the Lord, when we are walking in the purity that God gives us in and through the person and work of Christ, then others around us are going to see that. Others around us are going to be made righteous too because they are going to hear the gospel that we're constantly talking about. They're going to see the love that we have for one another. They're going to hear the prayers that we're praying on behalf of those who have not yet come to know Christ. And they too are going to desire to have that which you have. When they see you walking with the Lord, they will want to have a closer walk with the Lord too. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We will see the church grow. We will see the church do well when we begin with ourselves. When we begin by putting ourselves to the side. Suppose that I came into church one Sunday morning and I got up behind the pulpit and didn't mention anything, didn't mention anything about potential changes that might have happened. Or, and I get up behind the pulpit and you look at me and by one look you say, something's different about him. And I've dyed my hair. I've dyed my hair and I've dyed my beard. That's going to be a very obvious change. As soon as I get up behind the pulpit, you're going to say, something's different about him. And in the same way, when we are bought by the blood of Christ, we should have such a stark difference within us from who we used to be that it shouldn't take someone asking you, hey, are you a follower of Christ? Do you love Jesus? Do you go to church? They should know without a doubt that you are a child of God. Everyone around you should know without a doubt that you are one who walks in righteousness. Everyone around you should know without a doubt that you are not one who does the things that you used to do, but that you are changed from within. That you've not just cleaned yourself outside. That you've not just cleaned up your speech and put a filter over your mouth. But that God has done a mighty work within you to save your soul out of the very pit of hell and has placed you within His church as a son or daughter of His own. And that He is walking with you and that you are walking with Him. The world should know something is different about you if you were in Christ. And this is what verse 18 says. That if you were truly in Christ, the people around you are going to notice a difference about you. And they're going to say, I want whatever he has. I want whatever she has. Give me some of that because something's different about them. They're not dismayed by the things of the world. They're not brought down by all the worries of the world anymore. They have a hope that is set on Christ. They have a hope that is far beyond this world. We're told in Isaiah chapter 40 that the things of this world will pass away. Everything around us will pass away. Even as beautiful as the changing of the leaves are, is, we know that eventually those leaves will wither and die. The changing of the seasons serves to remind us that everything around us changes. Everything around us dies off. But we serve a God 
who is the one changing the seasons. We serve a God who is unchanging. We serve a God who is God from generation to generation. We serve a God who does not change, who does not need to be edited or updated to keep up with the times. We serve a God who is risen and enthroned upon His throne, which is His forever. And because of that, because our hope is in Christ, our hope is in Jesus who has risen from the grave. Our hope is in the one true and living God, the God who is no longer in the grave, a God who is not like the other false gods of the world who have statues risen for them, but they are not able to speak or make actions. We serve a living God, and because of that, we should have a hope that the world sees. We should have a joy about us that the world takes note of when they watch how we live. Verse 18 and a harvest of righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If we are to see the church move forward, if we are to see the church healthy and vibrant with life and joy that comes from Christ alone, then we must set our mind upon the things of Christ. We must not be those who are devoted to ourselves and devoted to seeing all of our own desires fulfilled because that would be the devil's ministry within us. But instead, we set our mind on the things of God. And when we do that, the church will be made strong. As we ask our musicians to sing a hymn of invitation, I want to read a hymn from the great reformer Martin Luther, which was written in 1529. A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. God is our help. God is our shield. God is our strength. We are in a spiritual battle. We are in the midst of spiritual warfare. And if we are to be those who are triumphant and victorious over the plot of the devil and over the ministry that the devil seeks to fulfill within each of us as individuals, then we must trust in Christ. We must understand that our only strength is in the risen Savior who is our strength, who is our help, who is our bulwark never failing. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for what You've done for us. That even in the garden when the devil tempted Adam and Eve, You made a promise even then that though He tempted Adam and Eve, You would send Your Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. And Father, we know that You have crushed Him 
We know that victory is ultimately yours, that triumph belongs to you. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to trust in that. Help us to be strong, to stand firm in you. We know that the devil and his demons are raging against us. That they seek on every side to destroy us and to dismay us. But we know that you are on the throne. We ask that you would help that reality, that understanding of your standing as the sovereign one of the universe, that you would help that to bring us great joy and hope as we look to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.